Hello, and welcome back to uh, another episode of Mechanical Freak Presents. This week we're going to have our first return guest, uh, historian Matthew Van Dyne, uh, who just wrote an article for the Mechanical Freak website called Communists Around Every Corner about China, the U.S., and the utility of anti-communism. Since recording this podcast on July 26th, a lot has happened and a lot of context I feel like probably needs to be put in. Uh, first, you're going to hear us reference uh, the police in the streets of Seattle quite a bit. On July 25th, police ran riot again through Seattle, uh, beating protesters, shooting them with rubber bullets, gassing them, uh, throwing flashbang grenades from the rooftops of buildings down into crowds, etc., etc. Right. So that is the context of what we're referencing. At the same time, uh, the U.S. has been on a particular anti-China bent that has only gotten worse since we did the recording. Just this morning, I woke up to the Department of State on Twitter, this official State Department account, uh, posted a meme that just says in quotes with a scary picture behind it of uh, the Chinese flag, mixed with uh, the American seal. It's very strange. With the quote, the CCP regime is a Marxist-Leninist regime. Secretary of State Michael Pompeo. Um, Not entirely sure what prompted them to post this today, but what a, you know, they're at it. Also, humorously, Robert C. O'Brien, who is Trump's national security advisor, Uh, And it was a character we talk about quite a bit in this interview. Uh, As of a couple of days ago, uh, has reported that he has COVID-19. So big thanks, big shout out to all the, uh, you know, Instagram witches and TikTok tankies out there who uh, helped to make that possible. All right. Uh, So just wanted to add that extra little bit of context. And without further ado... Here's the interview. My chance to go watch made in China. We play ping pong ball made in China. Get bitch matter says ping made in China. It had brother black car made in China. She said that she didn't love me. She said that she didn't love me. She said that she didn't love me. She lied, she lied. She all made it in China. She all made it in China. She all made it in China. She lied, she lied. All right, so I'm here with uh, Matthew Van Dyne, who has an article on uh, mechanicalfreak.website that you should go check out right now, and will be linked at the bottom uh, in the info for this episode called uh, Communists Around Every Corner. And he's here to talk a little China with us. We had you on last time and we talked a little China and uh, COVID-19 and uh, luckily all that's gone and passed. So uh, how, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah, you know, everything's great. I'm glad that we cured COVID. <laughs> <laughs> still, still waiting for that uh, vaccine or whatever, but you know, yeah, problem solved, particularly in Washington state, like very much problem solved. Nothing to think about or look about. (laughs) Look at. Well, I Um, went like I was on a a little vacation away from the city, camping in Oregon, and yesterday I was returning to the city as you know, reading about you know 
incredible police violence and horrible covid outbreaks and feeling like jesus this is <laughs> they'll just like stay in the woods for a few more years <laughs> but... yeah yeah it's, it's real like uh, maybe just build a bunker kind of time um yeah my mom called and asked uh if if she could visit in october and i was like no <laughs> like <laughs> obviously not <laughs> that's a terrible idea but um but yeah so Matt, you're a China historian and you're a modern China historian. And I mean that in the American historian sense of you study the last 50 years of China, <laughs> which, you know, uh, for some historians, like modern means like the last thousand years or something. Yeah, and those yeah. people are chumps. How can you know anything about the last thousand years of anything? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> so you're a normal historian. I'm a normal. I'm a modern guy living in modern times, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? Well, it is. I mean, particularly like China. I mean, there's so there's so many sort of ups and downs or whatever. How could you be an expert on, you know, whatever dynasty existed in 1000, you know, AD and also be an expert on imperialism and the opium wars? I feel like oh, there's yeah. like, like two competing things. You can't keep all that knowledge in your head. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's fun when they ask me to teach classes like uh, modern East Asia. Or I think the title was actually like East Asia since like the 1500s or something. And I felt horribly unqualified to, to do so. And I mean, I told my <laughs> students as such, but which probably didn't help the reviews. <laughs> well, you know, I um, I was asked at one point to teach uh, a master cam class, which is just like a computer program for like making models and making uh, a cnc programs and i told them i was like you know i don't really i'm not like really super proficient in master cam or whatever and the guy looked at me and he just said you only have to know more than the students <laughs> like, low, low bars i guess yeah <laughs> like, this is real college hours that's a real peek yeah. behind the curtain of how colleges work right yeah, there right. yeah but, um, <laughs> yeah don't get me started on ta and some of you know those experiences but yeah yeah no kidding <laughs> so so we have you back on to talk about china because uh i find china endlessly fascinating although well brian that's a pretty orientalist thing for you to say but <laughs> Yeah, like a true true Americanist, this, the names are too difficult. I can't remember. There's history that I didn't learn in school, so I don't want to go back and redo it. Uh, like every year, I make a. I have the same problem with like French history, and that I watch uh, like Les Mis or something, and I really want to learn about it. And every year, I I, I, I say I'm going to read a book about the French Revolution, and I know. That, and by the way, I know Les Mis is about the French Revolution, so don't fucking at me on Twitter about this. But <laughs> but I want to read a book about the French Revolution. And then I, j I get to the first French name and I just can't <laughs> like I, this is too difficult. I'm, never, I'm not going to be able to make it. Good old so, American names. Yeah, you know, uh, well, it, the problem is the cast of characters is too big and I've already memorized a certain cast of characters. It's like I've I've, I've dedicated myself to one show, which is 20th Century America. And I know all <laughs> the characters and now you want me to watch this whole other show that's got so many seasons and so many new <laughs> characters. And I just, I, I, I have trouble committing, but <laughs> this whole long way around. Is this why you I, just watch the same TV show over and over again as well? Pretty, no, I, I literally have this exact same. I mean, the, the show analogy came to me because this is my exact opinion about TV because people are always like, you should watch uh, Breaking Bad or The Wire, or <laughs> some other prestige drama. And I just I just I can't start, man. Like I'm, I'm 
now. I mean, there's a shitload of episodes. It's a long yeah, commitment. Yeah, you go and you look, and it's so many episodes. It's too much. I can't, you know, and I got to learn all new characters. Yeah, I already learned all the Game of Thrones characters. It was just disappointing. So, I, you know, I, I can't be I can't be hurt like that again. <laughs> anyways, anyways, about China. So there was all this China talk, and I think... One of the things that, you know, we're going to talk about the, the sort of U.S.-China relationship. And uh, one of the things that, that sort of really stuck out to me, like, and this happened around the Beijing Olympics, as being this, like, just perfect encapsulation of our, uh, the American relationship with China, was uh, during the 2008 Beijing Olympics, there was, like, every, for people who maybe were too young to remember this or whatever, but every newspaper had a take about how, uh, you know, the Olympics was going to be this cover for, like, you know, increasing the Chinese totalitarian police state. And there's all these uh, worried articles about protest pens and things like that. And, you know, some of us were hearing that with, like, a bit of, uh, you know, it, it was a bit ironic, bitterly ironic. Because we remember the protest pens in the 2004, uh, you know, Democratic and Republican National Conventions. And I remember that I think Naomi Klein alone uh, of all the people came out and was like, you know, a lot of that security attack that they're installing in Beijing, which is, of course, all bad, uh, is made right here in the United States. And not just made in the United States, but it's like in active in most American cities, Um but it was this weird thing that it never cut through the noise. It was always China's a police state. They have, you know, security cameras on every corner. But somehow New York City is exempted from this right, right. Uh, yeah. definition. Yeah. And, you know, I just, what's going on there? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, you just like hinted at it already, but it's like, yeah, viewing China as uniquely other, as uniquely authoritarian, as uniquely a police state. Um, which, and yeah, ignoring the reality that say the security technology, well, you know, right now there's all this fear over things like facial recognition software in China and big data collection in China. But, you know, I think anyone that follows not even left, but critical news coverage of the U S you could just replace the word China with the United States for all of these examples and use, you know, and it would be the same article, (laughs) um, which yeah. is weird, yeah. uh, you know, and then it's weird that like the 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 language of of these attacks on China is uniquely authoritarian, as uniquely a police state doesn't ever acknowledge that, and doesn't acknowledge this as you know this is a uniquely modern problem of our <laughs> contemporary reality uh, around the world, and you know not that it's not a real problem, but that if we're going to address it as a problem, we should be looking at it at home and abroad. And we should be beginning to ask, why is it only presented as a problem abroad, too? And why is it not presented as a problem at home? Yeah, in China, in this weird way, and this gets to sort of your article that I want to talk about, it, it it's sort of this, um, it's this canvas that we can, like, project uh, fears and stuff onto. And it's a canvas that I think we can project a lot of the worst aspects of American society onto as well mm-hmm. and sort of ship it out of the borders, right? You know, like, man, it's really, you know, like you were saying, this facial recognition technology and cameras everywhere, that's really scary uh, when it's happening in China. Uh, <laughs> and it kind of excises us from the equation so mm-hmm. we don't have to think about it too much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Well, and, it, and it really misses that there are like real connections between like the same companies in the world are doing this research and it's being sold around the world and whatnot. So. Yeah, I mean, the nice thing that uh, Naomi Klein brings up is that she's basically like what we're seeing is sort of a uh, like a median uh, global police state being created uh, by these sort of global security firms that are largely based in the US, but are also based around the world. And that uh, that's bad. <laughs> You know, like, this is a product of, of neoliberalism and it's sort of international reach and it's uh, extremely bad. And we probably shouldn't uh, think about it as only happening some other place that we can safely ignore. Um, which, yeah, kind of brings to, to your article, right? You, you begin your article by talking about how there was these um, these two sort of White House uh, like press releases uh, that happened on the same day. Uh, one about uh, monuments in the United States and the other about uh, a real deep dive into the the political ideology and deep psychology of the Chinese people. Oh, boy. Uh, yep. Could you maybe, uh, for, for those of us that aren't just uh, got our phone uh, alerts set to White House press releases, uh, can you maybe like just give a brief explanation of what these two releases were sort of about? Yeah, my pleasure. So one, and because I don't have it open on my computer, and it's a really unwieldy title, it was something like, so on June 26th, one is these remarks from uh, the from Robert C. O'Brien uh, about the global ambitions and ideology of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's literally called the Chinese Communist Party's Ideology and Global Ambitions, which you might expect to pick up uh, like a 400 page tome or something on this. But this is just about four typewritten pages. This guy yeah, is like yeah, nailed yeah. it. He really, nailed really it. nails every aspect of it. Um, <laughs> so, yes. So National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, he, he's, he goes deep into how the Chinese Communist Party is a communist party. Uh, and also has global ambitions <laughs> is basically <laughs> the argument of the article. But it's a little interesting. So he he starts it with this question, and this is a very common question among quote-unquote China watchers in the U.S., and that is, why didn't China become democratic? Um, there's an Economist article from, or I think it was like a, a cover story from two or three years ago, that, that this is the, the title of the article, basically. Well, wh- why do we get China wrong? Uh, and so, of course, there's this assumption that, well, since economic reforms within the People's Republic of China in the late 1970s, China has embraced the global capitalist economy and has been embracing market economic um, strategies in its economic development. And because of this, one would think that it would then become democratic because capitalism and democracy are completely intertwined. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then he goes into talking about like, well, we got this wrong because we didn't pay enough attention to the fact that the People's Republic of China continued to be the People's Republic of China, uh, controlled by the Communist Party of China, and they are communist and their ideology is this authoritarian nationalist ideology that is opposed to the political freedom that we all experience every day in the United States of America, this shining city on a hill that we live in. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And uh, we've been enjoying that political freedom in Seattle this weekend. I'll tell you. 
But uh, so, you know, this was co, you know, co-released. I mean, incidentally, I don't think on yeah. purpose, but co-released with a, uh, a, a proclamation from uh, President Trump that was, well, what, what was that one about? So, so that one is on protecting American monuments. And, uh, you know, this one might be a little bit more familiar to people in the streets of Seattle recently in Portland and other places, uh, which was basically saying that, well, the federal government will be protecting its national monuments, including federal buildings, uh, which is what has sort of opened the door as, as far as I understand the, the legality of it for these unmarked federal agents from the Department of Homeland Security in the streets of Portland and now Seattle as well. Um, did I get that right? Or is, am I correct on that, Brian, from your understanding? <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so yeah, and and this is so this in this executive order, it talks about the need to protect these monuments from protesters who are overturning monuments to you know slave traders or settler colonial genocideers. Um, for you know because we generally don't like those people. Um, yeah. And uh, and yeah, so so but the this executive order says like one of the the driving forces behind the overturning of these monuments is the dangerous ideologies and then singles out Marxism as well. Um, Mm -hmm. So the, in the article is trying to make this connection of like, well, maybe there's a coincidence that both these things are released and published on the web on the white house website on June 26, but they both ultimately focus on ideology and Marxist ideology as this threat. And it's both a, domestic threat but it is also a foreign threat and it is always sort of marxism being associated with the foreign being associated with china as it has also previously been associated with say jewish people um yeah amongst others as well um yeah and i think it then creates this idea that well we all know that we don't like communist china we definitely then shouldn't like communist protesters who are overturning monuments for what they say is the cause of black lives matter. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, you know, uh, the calling protesters, uh, Marxists, well, I'm sure many of the protesters would be thrilled at the, uh, <laughs> at the label. Yeah. Always is meant to impugn this sort of, uh, foreignness to them. And I, I remember, you know, going to college in like the early aughts, right. You know, like 2001, like 2004 and being in political science classes and, you know, one, you know, in one breath, you'd hear professors talk about like, yeah, you know, uh, some right wingers used to say that uh, communism was a Jewish plot. And by some right wingers, I mean, like all of academia like, prior to 19, prior to the Holocaust becoming a, a, a fact that people knew about. Right. Yeah. Um, but then they would out of the, you know, in another breath would talk about the like oriental nature of the uh, Russian people. And then, of course, of the Chinese people and how this, you know, made them, you know, Marxists or communists. Right. So there's always been this, you know, obviously fear of of communism in the West, but they seem to always sort of displace it out. to uh, the, It's this foreign ideology of these foreign people. Right. Which is mm-hmm. a sort of, you know, interesting thing. And, um, you know, I just want to, I'm going to read your own words at you for a second here, uh, just cause they're good. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and, you know, let's be serious. Uh, so, you know, not everybody's going to read the article. So I got to get a little bit. Here. So, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, read. 
<laughs> yeah, so you're right. Uh, while the timing of this order and the publication of O'Brien's speech on the White House website might be coincidental, taken together, they paint a picture where the Trump administration is locked in a battle with those inspired by Marxist ideologies, both at home and abroad. No matter uh, that very few U.S. Black Lives Matter protesters would likely align their goals with the developmentalism of Xi Jinping's socialism with Chinese characteristics. In the White House's schema, uh, both are painted with the same brush of Marxism, right? And, you know, I think it's this interesting thing, right? Because it's sort of the uh, Cold War holy crusade all over again, right? We're just getting to live it all over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And I mean, and I think what is being done here is that, well, so, and, and when I said very few Black Lives Matter protesters, I, you know, I think it's probably more than very few have sympathies to socialism, to Marxism of, of some, some mm-hmm. stripe, right? But, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's the majority of everyone out in the streets protesting is like, oh, yeah, I, I love Karl Marx. I, I don't think that's true. Um, and I think, yeah. you know, I might hope that someday, like, people will be like, incorporate a little some of that but you know yeah it's like it, it's it's complicated like people have a lot of different motivations and but they are united around you know standing up to racist police violence and the killing of unarmed black people um well and I, our... and I th- yeah and i think it's i think it's safe to say that even in the world of the american uh people who would say they're marxist left right the self-admitted marxist left uh, i don't think that g thought is a particularly no, no. vital branch yeah. of, yeah. of that like, but, uh, yeah. yeah but it serves this great function right of you know mm-hmm. the, the many people that might you know, more associated as liberals, more voting democratic, uh, but, you know, still anti-racist and, and want to, to stand up to police violence as well. But I think it, it associating both the protest, but the protest with Marxism, with China performs this function of maybe putting some seeds of doubt into some people who are a bit on the fence mm-hmm. and to think, to make them think, well, I don't know, like, I'm American. Like I'm not, I'm not a communist. I, I, maybe mm-hmm. if these protesters are communists, then, then like, it's not something I want to be a part of. Um, so I think it plays this active role in trying to dissuade people from, from protesting in the U S mm-hmm. because of these longstanding associations um, as Marxism, as a f- evil foreign ideology um, and combined with the racist orientalist assumptions about China as the evil foreign other as well. Yeah, and you know, as a and we'll get into this term later. As a long time uh, tanky myself, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we, you know, we might read this and get all upset and be like, uh, Xi Jinping and Marxism—that's uh, just neoliberalism with Chinese characteristics, my friends. You know, and we'd stroke our beards and feel very good about ourselves <laughs> for you know two hours. Right? I, I, right. I think you're. I think you're behind the times on what the what the tankies are thinking. Like, there's a. You gotta you gotta check out the meme pages devoted to Xi Jinping and and whatnot these days. Oh, <laughs> so, I know. I, the, the internet has created tankies of all sorts. There's some that are in, they're like a diehard uh, devoutists of like Inver Hoja, who is somebody whose name is more fun to say than to research. But <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just hilarious. You know, like we must uh, revive in uh, a communist Albania. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, you know who commun- who 
one of China's biggest partners was after the, the Sino-Soviet split in the 1960s was, of course, communist Albania. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, so, I mean, I, I honestly don't think any, like, modern tanky, online tankies actually know any of this stuff, but, like, uh, you know, Malice in the United States did have this whole thing where they, like, basically were like, this is in the late 60s, right? We're like, you know, look, Albania is the real deal. <laughs> the Soviet Union will fall <laughs> to the pressure of Al- communist Albania, and the CPUSA at one point uh, claimed that all its malice splitters uh, were funded with Albanian gold that had wow. been smuggled yeah. into the country to, to break up the CPUSA. Huh. That's just a little hilarious uh, insider yeah. information. Yeah. I mean, once you got the, all you need the right political line, right? And, and, and yeah. then everything will fall into place. The Soviet <laughs> Union will fall to the mighty Albanian <laughs> sword, but yeah. You know, I mean, the, uh, the past is a, is a, a wonderful place um but <laughs> the point being um uh, yeah so i you know i think that this this sort of uh basically what we're talking about is, is the functional use of anti-communism right by the american state to you know attack you know enemies at home and abroad and part of the reason why it's so effective in the united states is that like Nobody in the United States knows, like, you know, what Marxism is or communism. They certainly don't know, like, the histories or politics of any of these countries. I'm talking, like, in a very broad way mm-hmm. here. Um, and that's what makes it so effective. So let's maybe, let's get into, uh, you know, so by nobody, too, I especially mean the people who are pushing this line are especially ignorant. So O'Brien, he, uh, in his statement, gives us a definition of uh, communism uh, where he he has it as uh, under communism individuals are merely a means to be used toward the achievement of the ends of the collective nation state thus individuals can be easily sacrificed for the nation state's goals individuals do not have inherent value under Marxism Leninism they exist to serve the state the state does not exist to serve them um so, one, uh, what do you make of that? And let's maybe see if we can uh, figure out how this applies to China. Somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's there's a lot to unpack in this weird quote. Um, <laughs> and uh, first of all, you know, communism, notoriously not an internationalist ideology espousing the need for the workers of the world to all free themselves collectively together. Um, and obviously, you know, in the history of, of communism around the world, the Soviet Union, the People's Republic of China, people have developed ways to combine communist ideology with national liberation to stand up to Western colonialism. Uh, so it's a little bit complicated. But yeah, I mean, only someone who has never read a word of, of a Marxist could actually say that, like, Marxism is all about the nation. Because that's just you know it's it's not true if you mm-hmm. do if you do any amount of research about it right, um, and then this idea of the individual well you know I think there's a lot of different things going on uh, so one is this just orientalist idea idea that like is not just restrained to talking about uh, about communism but is this idea of well people from East Asia are all homogenous and are all the same uh, and are not individuals. And that, that goes back longer than sort of anti-communism uh, mm-hmm. in the United States, but, but it's connected to it. Um, so I think that's, that's one of the things going on about this idea that, well, people from the People's Republic of China, aren't, they don't care about the individual at all. Um, and then uh, 
but but like then there is also this misunderstanding of communism because it is espouses the the great power of collective action and working together for everyone to build a better world that is more equal for all that thus they do not believe in individual rights and here we are seeing that ultimately i think o'brien's misunderstandings reveal a lot about his own what the communists would call bourgeois ideology that well the best way to organize the economy and thus society is through individual private property protections, uh, which of course is going to create an unequal society, but it'll be a freer society because we can all do as we please and do not need to care about the collective common good. Um, and then there is this strange connection between, I think, this this individualism of, of bourgeois thought, of capitalist thought, with the idea of the nation too. And it's a contradictory mm-hmm. one because I think the nation, well, there's this idea that a nation is an imagined community and that like I, as a United States citizen, I have a common cause with a, you know, retiree in Florida or something, despite mm-hmm. that I am like... Or with Jeff Bezos, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. That we're all the same and that, um, and that we, we believe in this nation advancing together into the future and that the world is made up of these nations, which like, I think this idea of the world made up of nations, there's some parallelism with like, well, the ideal society is then made up of individuals that are all trying to advance their own interests that obviously some will win and some will lose, but we all have the chance to win, the chance to lose and we're competing mm-hmm. against each other. Um, but that's Robert C. O'Brien's view of the world. It's not really mine. <laughs> and I think it's kind of, it's, it's obviously an ideological view of the world that is based on protecting a, the rights of private property and individuals, but really, you know, white male land owning individuals historically, and still to the present primarily. And then also mm-hmm. the rights of the wealthiest nations in the world like the united states to do whatever the fuck they want to advance um their own interests yeah and i mean um and part of the power of uh sort of you know the language of anti-communism and stuff too is that somebody could release i mean he gave this as sort of a, a a he gave this as a lecture, right? You know, mm-hmm. and then released as a statement and that nobody, I mean, literally weeks prior, the Lieutenant governor of Texas was like, look, old people are just gonna have to volunteer to die for their children's right. economy. Right. So it's like a bit of a, a, a brutal irony that nobody would, you know, sort of dare point out. But, uh, you know, when we talk about this idea of, you know, uh, you know, when he talks about the values of Marxism, Leninism, later in his speech, he says that she and that she is the last uh, like heir to Stalin and all this kind of stuff. And I kind of wanted to maybe work this out a little bit, right? So, you know, in uh, China, uh, Mao became king of China in <laughs> 1949, right? <laughs> I think he referred to the term despot. <laughs> Yeah, and he just had a but he had a big uh, computer board with a bunch of buttons that he controlled everybody with, uh, and then nothing changed. They had the same political ideology from there on out, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I he yeah he he completely flattens out communist movements and talks about from Lenin to Stalin to Mao to Xi Jinping, like they're all the same. They all believe the same thing. And all they really, all they really believe is that the state should impose on individual rights. Is I, I think the core of his understanding of what communism is. Um, and I think so. 
looking at the differences in in thought of Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, and Xi Jinping, there are great variations. There's these great variations in the people that are are following them as well. So I, I think within China uh, and the history of China, so so Mao Zedong, uh, uh, cont- you know, was hit, hit, occupying various different positions in the Communist Party as well as the administration until his death in 1976 from the founding of the PRC in 1949 until his death in 1976. Uh, And during this period, there was a lot of very dramatic things that happened in Chinese history that were generally pushing towards, uh, yeah, a communist society that uh, is eliminating private property. And they didn't get there. And it was a complicated thing. And there were lots of different phases and different movements. The Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution. and then after he died, things changed around. And, and especially under Deng Xiaoping in the late 1970s uh, and 1980s, there's a push to incorporating uh, a market economy into China and to using the forces of, of the market to determine production, to determine consumption, um, and to restore some private property rights as well. Uh, and this is very, very different than what Mao Zedong ever was espousing. Um, And Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party today will say that its ideology uh, is inheriting things from from Mao Zedong, but they don't say that they are completely continuing on exactly what he thought. In fact, they they have very much have condemned, say, the Cultural Revolution, this moment when Mao Zedong encouraged uh, high school and middle school and college students and as well as workers to rebel against the, um, the bureaucratic authority figures that had come to, that had risen to to the top in China and he was sort of calling for for open rebellion in the streets uh yeah that, that's like pretty different from what Xi Jinping wants so <laughs> um and and Xi Jinping would would I'm sure say the same thing but that's pretty different from from what he wants so I, I, but and I think here you just see Robert I mean you know Obviously, there's a lot, a lot, a lot to go into all those things I just mentioned. But I think the, yeah. the main point is that O'Brien is just flattening all this out into the same thing. And it's a meaningless idea of what communism is, ultimately. Yeah. And I mean, you know, uh, look, I, yeah, Robert O'Brien's probably pretty easy to pick on. I'm sure he's just a giant oaf. Uh, but this is like a thing that I think uh, people in the U.S. get wrong about just foreign countries generally, right? We want to have this idea that there's this easy, clean narrative usually attached to a single individual that can define these, you know, political units made up of, in the case of China, you know, over a billion people, right? You know, uh, the obsession with uh, Mao and whether or not he's the heir to Stalin or whatever is based off this belief that, like I said, that he's just a guy at a computer controlling everybody's movements. When China, I mean, in particular of the of the social stations, I mean, China like has this really interesting and like fraught sort of political history, right? Lots of lots of battles being fought, right? You know, uh, it really wasn't a what Mao says goes situation nope. a lot of times. <laughs> um, and you know, uh, for those that read, you know. Uh, want to read uh, books about China, particularly in the 60s and 70s, the one thing you'll find in that little photo section in the middle is always the giant banners like hanging on walls, the political banners with the, you know, uh, you know, various programs on them and stuff like that and people fighting over them. But that becomes 
a little too sticky to deal with, I guess, in the American conception of the uh, of the outside world, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, and I think people's understanding of, of communism of the outside world in general is one that can be reduced to the quotes that are in Robert O'Brien's speech, too, right? It's this, you know, oh, yeah, communism, that's bad because they don't like individuals or something. And that's that's about all that that people see the need to understand sometimes, which is frustrating, right? But... Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and it, it it I think by design it also makes it impossible to, you know, if it's just on its face bad and it is this flat featureless, you know, thing or whatever, it makes it impossible to say things like uh, you know, maybe the expansion of like women's rights in China was good. <laughs> you know, like yeah, right. <laughs> maybe uh teaching a billion peasants to read was a good thing. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. And I, I mean, I think in these moments are just, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's I, I mean, it's hilarious in this horrible way to read these articles that are just, you know, or, or yeah, hear Robert O'Brien's speeches or whatever that are, um, you know, espousing this, this horrors of, of communism thing as we're sitting in the United States as, you know, 135 plus thousand people have died of this disease that, mm-hmm. um, you know could be controllable if people had maybe would would or not just people i like i don't really blame people for this as much as our (laughs) policy and structures uh would be you know thinking about collective common goods and sacrificing some of those individual rights and ideas for um for yeah for staying inside and wearing a mask but yeah uh, Uh, Yeah, I mean, it has become this sort of, uh, you know, anytime I sort of get into a conversation, uh, you know, on Facebook or with relatives or whatever about uh, COVID, it really does flatten to this thing. Like anytime I bring up China, like I'll be like, you know, Texas is going to have like worse COVID statistics than the entire country of China. They always have this uh, don't believe this Chinese statistics responses and, and, you know, go on this whole big thing. But the deal is, is that you know, using, you know, sort of China bashing to hide the just historic failure of the American state to deal with uh, a a crisis. Uh, It hides the fact that like, you know, Vietnam got it under control too. You know, Mm -hmm. so did South Korea, so did, you know, Germany, so did like a lot of countries. Right, right, right. It's it's almost like it's not even limited to to ideology. I feel like there's a, again, on the quote unquote tanky left to then be like, well, this was a uniquely socialist victory that china and vietnam had but you know like yeah taiwan and south korea did fine too and no one's calling them socialists <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's yeah, exactly. like being a little bit you know less into individual rights and capitalist exploitation in the united states of america could have helped stop this disaster so yeah it's just an extremely convenient cover for i mean what is shaping up to be just a world historic failure of the american state right yeah uh which is gonna get worse which is cool yeah Uh, (laughs) yeah i thought uh the other thing that kind of comes up in the uh o'brien speech right which is also always comes up uh around the issue of china is you know not only is china evil because it is you know marxist or communist or whatever but you know it's also the those dang human rights violations and uh, you talk about the sort of use of, of human rights discourse. And I just sort of want to know, what's your problem with it? Matt? Like, we, we all like human rights. I, human. You know, I guess I, like I, I, I hate humans, Brian. And I hate your rights. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you got against people, bud? Yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, I mean, the, you know, this is certainly not the first one to point this out, but uh, yeah, the, the way that the U.S. manipulates the discourse of human rights to justify its foreign policy and notoriously its military interventions around the world uh, that result in definitely not uh, greater human rights and actually, you know, kill millions of people as well. Um but it is this great way of like, well, you know, we, we've got to stop Saddam Hussein. Like, look at the human rights, the human rights violations. It's horrible. Like, it's fine if we kill millions of Iraqis. Um, because we're <laughs> Somehow free. that's we're never free. a human rights violation. You no, know? <laughs> no, yeah. And, and it's this, uh, yeah, it's this particular ideology that, that emerges. And it's this idea that, well, the U.S. is ultimately trying to do good in the world. And our foreign policy is going to then also be advancing the causes of of goodness and we are you know the world's policemen uh taking down the baddies um and you know it's it's obviously all a myth but then it becomes complicated and 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 it becomes complicated because well yeah there there are horrible things that happen in other countries there are human rights violations um but you know, the U.S. state seems to only manipulate those when it is in the the interests of its foreign policy. Um, yeah, and I mean, it's, you know, and again, the power of this sort of, uh, you know, ideology or, you know, viewing China as the communist menace is, uh, I guess, when people on the right want to feel good about themselves, they'll, you know, pearl clutch about, you know, protesters being beaten, arrested, whatever, in Hong Kong, which, of course, is bad. Um, but then when you say, well, what about the protesters here? All of a sudden, you know... Oh, well, they're, they're evil communists, right? You know, they're... <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, which is this interesting and extremely self-serving um, double standard. But uh, the one that I think is like the most interesting about uh, China is the discussion over uh, the Uyghurs. And I know that you you know, even spent some time in that area of China and stuff. But uh, for those of us who uh, live in the States and have like no fucking idea uh, who the Uyghurs are, what's going on, etc., other than the fact that they periodically are name dropped to justify usually something terrible. Um <laughs> What 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 the hell is going on with Uyghurs? Who are they? What's happening? All that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, very complicated story. But given a brief run through, is uh, yeah. So the Uyghurs are a uh, they speak a Turkic language. They are predominantly Muslims. They live in the far northwest of of China, which is a very uh, has a lot of deserts and mountains, as well as natural gas and oil and. Uh, and, oh wait, uh, hold on! Great cotton production as well. Um, so it places <laughs> natural, many natural, natural gas and oil they're sitting on, huh? Yeah, yeah. So interesting. <laughs> so All right. Turkic-speaking Muslims have have lived in in Xinjiang for a long time. They have a lot of connections to the people that live in Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan as well, and sort of cultural, linguistic, uh, religious connections. Um, and they have been largely sort of autonomous for a lot of China's history. Uh, they were, uh, the, the province was incorporated into the Qing dynasty in the mid 18th century. It didn't become a province of the Qing dynasty until the late 19th century. The Qing dynasty is the last dynasty of China that ends in 1911 mm-hmm. and then ends in the PRC and whatnot. So, so the PRC 
talks about Xinjiang as having always been a part of China from, you know, time immemorial to the present. Um, <laughs> Let me start and, time immemorial in 1949. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, and, and, uh, and they're doing this because, well, many people have argued that there is a settler colonial project happening in, in Xinjiang at the moment, and that because of desires to exploit the region for its natural resources, more and more Han Chinese people have been moving to the, to the region. Um, and there's been this big population swing that has gone from being like 5% Han Chinese in, um, in 1949 to being around 50%. So there's just been a huge demographic shift of people moving there for a variety of very complicated reasons as well. Um, um, and, but then really starting in the eighties and nineties, there is the shift to try to, to move more people there to exploit the resources more and more as China is also shifting to using more of a market economy, socialism with Chinese characteristics or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. and very recently there has been this move. So, okay. The, the, the fear of the, uh, from the People's Republic of China is that the Uyghurs are separatists and that they are going to try to start a guerrilla war or whatever to remove themselves from China, being encouraged, of course, by foreign agents as well. Um, And in order to stop this, then the Uyghurs should be put in internment camps. Uh, And interestingly, the discourse of terrorism has been used, uh, and this was really starting in the around 2016, 2017, that mm-hmm. the idea of, well, the Uyghurs are both separatists and they're also terrorists, and we need to counter terrorism. Uh, you might be noticing some of this language is kind of <laughs> similar to ones that we know in the US, uh, and, and it is, and I think... Uh, the PRC is very much using this discourse of the war on terror for its own, uh, yeah, its own interests in in Xinjiang. Um, yeah, and that's an interesting point because I think a lot of us uh, who maybe were uh, in the anti-war movement and stuff like that around the second Iraq war, you know, our introduction, like my introduction to the concept of Uyghurs, like as a people and stuff, was uh, finding out that a bunch of them were in some CIA uh, rendition camps. Yep, yep. Because uh, you know the you know Chinese had declared them uh, terrorist agents, and of course the CIA having you know just not giving a shit about anything was like, yeah, sure, fuck it. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And like and like at the time, the U.S. national security state obviously didn't give a give a shit about like uh human rights violations against the uyghurs we put them in guantanamo mm-hmm. bay in fact it's, it's, it's <laughs> been a very curious turn that this uh, has taken uh, which makes me feel that it's very deeply felt on their side but yeah. anyway so so the the using in you know maybe people don't appreciate in this moment because uh it's you know it's so long since 2003 i guess but the way that internationally everybody jumped on the language the u.s used around terrorism uh is truly astonishing i mean russia was like hell yeah it's it's open season on everybody in central asia uh you know the turks were like fuck yeah you know you know the you know the the mass murders we're doing in the 90s uh we're retroactively going to say terrorism on that one as well. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's obviously a, a very effective discourse for advancing mm-hmm. national interests, especially because the U, the U.S. as the sort of global imperial hegemon is the one that mm-hmm. is using it too. It gives it great, great 
Well, we set sort of a legal precedence when it comes to uh, imperialism in a lot of ways. And and that was just a, a charming one that we unleashed on the world. So the Chinese basically, the Chinese state, uh, you know, is essentially declaring the Uyghurs a terrorist organization, right? Because they happen to be sitting on some oil, natural gas, yep. a, very, a very unusual situation that nobody in the United States should understand. Um, so what, so then what happens? Right. So, so they've been put into estimates around a million plus people in these detention camps um, that are, the official Chinese terminology, I think it's like vocational training schools. Um, and <laughs> the rational of the state is like, well, we're putting these detention camps so that we are going to, uh, you know, educate them in the ways of, you know, the norms of the Society of the People's Republic of China and away from dangerous separatist terrorist Muslim ideas. Um, yeah. And yeah, we need to reeducate them away from this. Um, and yeah, there's, you know, there are, obviously it's difficult to get information and there's sort of a whole online war about what the information is and whether the reporting is accurate or just CIA manipulation, blah, blah, blah. But like my own position is like enough of the information is accurate that like very bad things are happening in these camps. Uh, there are connections of them, uh, being labor camps as well, um, that are, you know, using the labor of. Uyghurs interned in these camps to produce goods that ultimately will find their way on the world market uh, through, you know, I think there are 83 multinational corporations that are alleged to have uh, been benefiting from the labor of Uyghurs in determined camps, uh, including, you know, Amazon, Apple, Nike, uh, Sony, etc. So, you know. All the all the big guys. Um, yeah, I are... think uh, I think Domler Benz was even on there, which I just love the symmetry of uh, them. Like anywhere there's a concentration camp, they're there. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's really astonishing. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean I, that's sort of an interesting point because you know in your article you sort of you point out that uh, you know in the United States we have very recently notably adopted this concern over the Uyghurs in these camps. But weirdly enough, the uh, use of the camps for, you know, producing goods for Western corporations that then go on the open market, that seems to uh, fall out of the news cycle in an interesting way. It's true. It's true. Um, And so the U.S. has been taking some actions against against China for its treatment of the Uyghurs, you know, using this defense of of human rights, despite the fact, as as you mentioned, they're not really talking about the fact that, well, this is actually like a problem of global capitalism as well as the People's Republic of China. Um, So the U.S. Congress signed into law the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act of 2020 on June 17th. Um, which imposes some sanctions on high-level Chinese officials that are found to be involved in the uh, in the construction of these camps and in the interning of Uyghurs. Um, reading the the language of that bill, um, they mention that well, any corporation, any U.S. corporations that benefit from forced labor should make sure to, to, you know, monitor their supply chains. It doesn't say anything about, say, like imposing sanctions on Amazon for uh, benefiting from that forced labor or anything like that. Um, but yeah, so it's, a, you know, one of these sanctions packages that the U.S. uses all around the world as ways of sort of the, the first round of 
foreign military of, of intervening in other countries' affairs and hurting them, you know, often ramping mm-hmm. up to military intervention um, and often causing great human human rights violations themselves. If anyone knows the history of say sanctions against Iraq and other places as well. Um, yeah, I mean, sanctions are, you know, it should be stressed, designed to hurt the, you know, civilian population of a country. Like, it's a weapon specifically designed to kill civilians, yeah. really. Like, I mean, the, the, the neutron bomb of diplomacy. <laughs> I mean, I think also revealing, like, how not even committed to human rights mm-hmm. of the Uyghurs the U.S. is. Well, these are just, like, those sanctions that are against very, like, high-level officials. They're not, yeah, yeah. you know, they're not even that, you yeah. know. Yeah, which is obviously good for many people in, in, in China that they are not more extensive sanctions, yeah. but um, is generally bad still. Or like, yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. What makes it, de- yeah, you know, uh, I will, uh, we'll put a link to the bottom. There's actually a, a very good episode, I think Citation Z, where they go through sanctions and stuff. It's uh, very good that we'll talk about. But, um, you know, whole, I, you know, many podcasts spent hours talking about <laughs> the ins and outs of sanctions. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the interesting thing, you know, about the Uyghurs, right, is that we went from essentially like black bagging them into uh, CIA torture black sites uh, on China's behalf uh, to all of a sudden becoming very concerned about their personal safety, but not so concerned that we're going to, you know, ask our own companies to stop profiting off of right. it. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, the thing that you're sort of getting at your paper, right, is the sort of emptiness of the human rights discourse when it comes to official enemies of the United States, which China seems to have floated back into, you know, official enemies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think ultimately that's the lens that I view this Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act is that it's not really designed to help the Uyghurs. It is designed as one one early weapon in this in this new Cold War rhetoric against China that has been developing for a while um, and is now yeah getting to very very scary levels um i think so mm-hmm. yeah i mean you know it's of course uh trite or i guess maybe stale or something to uh bring up but it's like you know it's hard to take u.s human rights you know uh rhetoric seriously when we have the largest prison population on the planet right and, right right yeah yeah well, who would have concentration camps with forced labor? No one with the U.S. really doesn't have those. Yeah, it's just, it's just hard to take it seriously. Yeah. Um, and and one could easily imagine if uh, the U.S. you know imperial state saw some advantage in uh, eradicating the Uyghurs, they would be right there doing it as they were. Oh, and yeah. we actually don't have to speculate about that because they were doing it like ten oh, years yeah. ago. Well, so, and and, and uh, like uh, and the PRC establishment is very aware of the hypocrisy of that. And if you mm-hmm. read any official publications from, say, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, or tweets of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, because you can find their Twitter, like yeah, they they point out the hypocrisy all the time. Um, I think it was like leading up to the Mount Rushmore protest. There's some great pro- there's some great tweets from them about how the U.S. is a settler colonial nation founded on genocide. And it's like yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously that's that's true um and i think because the u.s is the one making these claims of human rights violations most people in the world know that they ultimately have no moral authority because many people outside of the u.s recognize the u.s as you know the greatest purveyor of violence in the world (laughs) yeah you know it's weird how that 
<laughs> yeah, it's weird how uh, all the uh, people on Facebook and Twitter who want to uh, yell Martin Luther King at you whenever you have a demonstration uh, oh, seem to forget that part of <laughs> his legacy. Yeah. Uh, just completely gone with the wind, I guess. But um, yeah, I mean, in it, it sort of brings us to this this interesting conundrum, right? When you're on the left in the United States, which is... Uh, I would argue a lot of China's policy is extremely bad. <laughs> I'd argue it's not a communist state anymore, all that kind of stuff. But it's hard because once it's reached, you know, official enemy status with the U.S., you, you know, are riding that line of becoming a sort of useful uh, idiot, right, for American imperialism in some ways, right? Yeah. And this is the sort of uh, tightrope on the left that we have to walk. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's so I was thinking about like how to how to explain this earlier. And I think because in some ways, it's like, well, you know, the left in the US is like, pretty, you know, it is not great at making policy into action in the US at the moment. I mean, hopefully it will. But I think there is yeah, there's some immediate dangers, even for people who consider themselves very far left, very opposed to all the policies of both the Republicans and Democrats to then buy into some of the anti-China discourse. And I was, so I think one way to think about this is say, okay, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders has some interesting positions on China. On the one hand, he talks about greater cooperation than Donald Trump or Joe Biden does. Um, but then, yeah, he's, he's also will certainly like use the same human rights, new Cold War discourse that we've been talking about all episode as well. And I think in the world that Bernie Sanders could have become president, which obviously is not going to happen, but say he became president in 2021. And if everyone on the left had already sort of bought into the anti-China discourse that is being pushed down our throats by, by, you know, most media outlets, then people wouldn't really be working to push Bernie, a figure like Bernie Sanders to have actually those reasonable positions on China that I think he like, I think my impression of him is that he kind of holds both ideas in his head at the same time sometimes. And uh, I can, you know, there's different quotes from him on China that sort of go one way or the other towards cooperation Mm -hmm. or towards, you know, new cold war rhetoric. Um, And so, so I think this is the danger. If people on the left can't try to walk this, this line of, of both recognizing, yeah, the real dangers of, of the PRC's policies, uh, as well as their intersections with global capital and global surveillance states, um, if they can't walk this line of both seeing those criticisms, but then also not falling into, well, you know, the U.S. ultimately can still be a force for good in the world. And I I think some of that is sort of Bernie Sanders' position, ultimately. As much as I wish he had a chance of being president, I think he still sort of believes in this idea that the U.S. can be a force for good in the world. Um, and I think there's a real danger there um, for the left. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, uh, going back and, and reading sort of uh, Naomi Klein's comments on the 2008 Beijing Olympics, you know, I think that she was sort of onto something. And I would have loved if she pushed it harder of this idea of you can attack China in a way by like being honest about the problems there right and being honest about the fact that the United States is at the root of a lot of this yeah 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 like you know if people Um, so if people when when like learning about like reading an article about 
internment camps in Xinjiang were immediately introduced. And this is the war on terror discourse that the U.S. originated. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that that would be like a useful critique. And th- there are there are people um, making those arguments online that I'm sure we'll link to. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, they're definitely not in the mainstream discourse. Uh, and and just another example um, that connects here is so. Uh, Eric Prince of Blackwater fame, uh, yeah, real <laughs> evil guy, right? So he is the CEO of the Frontier Services Group that uh, has some contracts in Xinjiang to do things like training security guards. So it's, you know, this global private security company that, yeah, most people on the left would agree is evil uh, and is he is he is himself involved in helping to build these detention camps, um, although he denies it, but I went to the website and I think it was just sort of there. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, famously trustworthy individual, Eric Prince. Um, but yeah. It, it like, misses the ability to see this as a global problem with like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, interconnected forces. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, uh, what I think makes it difficult for people on the left thing I say, it's, is just this, uh, quite frankly, uh, I think I, I had brought this up when we talked uh, China and COVID-19. This is one of my favorite quotes ever to bring up, which is uh, Bruce Cummings one time talking to a crowd. And Bruce Cummings is an American historian, writes a, is a, a Korean historian, modern Korea or whatever, and is one of the few like American historians who's been in North Korea and like, been in the archives and stuff. So, you know, he's talking in a, to a crowd and somebody asks him about like, you know, aren't the people in North Korea, like, aren't they just, like, shielded from knowing anything about the outside world? And he makes a very sly sort of comment where he said, you know, I think the average, like, Korean peasant or city dweller I talked to knows about as much about the outside world as he he is at the University of Illinois, I believe. But he's like, as the average person in Illinois does. And, you know, it's this very sly comment, (laughs) you know, that uh, I, I think I know the way he intends it. But but the U.S. left, I think it it suffers from a just sort of uh, like parochial, like just, you know, it it doesn't look outside very often. And, you know, this is a problem just America generally. But the real way to have the sort of critique of China without being uh, a stooge of the U.S. is to have a critique of imperialism, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, which sort of brings us to the interesting point about China and Africa too, right? I mean, that's this is the other drum that the Obama administration was sort of beating towards the end of its uh, 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 towards the end of 2016 when it had its you know encirclement policy in the South China Sea and all that kind of stuff. But um, you know, what the hell is China doing in Africa? I guess, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. just just briefly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's so. The, yeah, this is a complicated one too. That I mean, there's a lot of debate about. Like, okay, so basically, China is giving loans to different African countries for development, for building a railroad, whatever. Um, and um, there's a lot of debate about whether this type of investment is very similar to the neo-colonial investment of the U.S. and the INF and the World Bank about, well, it is giving loans, but then creating these debt traps that are leading to these structural adjustment policies where uh, we'll give you this money as long as you reshape your economy along the 
lines that Washington tells you to reshape it uh, is, you know, the, mm-hmm. the classic critique of, of U.S. development aid and global development aid in, in Africa in general. Um, and yeah, so, so China has been getting involved in this, uh, in this development game. Um, and there, there's a lot of debate, and I think the jury is real, really still out about whether this is the same type of debt trap neocolonial um, force as, as other types of aid is. But I think regardless, we can probably assume that it's complicated and it is no, not entirely good or entirely bad um, and is probably looks more similar to some of the problems of neocolonialism than not. Um, yeah. I mean, in a sense it represents the, I, this is why, I mean, the American left just has to have some sort of like anti-imperial outlook because I mean, the U S in the late 19th century, early 20th century was essentially engaging in the same game, right. Which would go to like British colonies and stuff that were on the, you know, outskirts of the empire and be like, we'll cut you a slightly better deal. You know, like, and, uh, you know, it, it turns out once they, you know, the U S dominated the region, all of a sudden, you know, terms change and things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, so getting back to this, (laughs) the, uh, the U S left in this sort of like anti-imperial outlook, uh, Maybe now is a good time to talk about the tankies. I, th- I think so. Yeah. And I, so yeah. So I think like so, tankies going off of the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956, right? When Stalin sent in tanks to put down an uprising there, and then the the idea as well, the tankies represent the tanks of 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 the Soviet Union of the People's Republic of China, and. Uh, in terms of China, the basic idea is, well, the PRC can do nothing wrong. They are the bearers of actually existing socialism on the road to communism. Um, and they are fighting U.S. imperialism. And the U.S. is the main imperialist force in the world and the one to be fought. So the tankies very much do have a critique of imperialism. Um, mm-hmm. And that... Basically, any any nation state standing up to the United States is an example of anti-imperialism. So there's a number of different organizations pushing the tanky line. In terms of China, an interesting one to follow on Twitter and Instagram is the Chow Collective, spelled Q-I-A-O. Um, and yeah, they, uh, they've gotten some, some very notable supporters, like Vijay Prashad has actually uh, done some interviews with them as well. To, to, mm-hmm. to talk about anti-imperialism and how China is standing up to U.S. imperialism. And because of that, we should support China. Well, and, and I think there's some recognition of, well, like, China is not a paradise quite yet, but um, but it will be, and, and it intends to be. Um, so, and in terms of Africa, say, like, as an example, like, so aid to, to, to nations in Africa. Well, ultimately their argument would be like, that's not imperialism. That is just a good intention development, whatever that means. Mm. Um, and there's no strings attached. I don't, you know, it's, it's a strange logic. It's like, well, the West does this thing that looks pretty similar. We're not really going to delve that much in and just assume that, yeah, no, if China's doing it, it's fine. Um, you know, detention camps in, in Xinjiang, the line is they basically don't exist and it's a, CIA misinformation plot, um, which is 
a strange line to take since the PRC has acknowledged that they exist. Um, but uh, but yeah, that this logic is that um, that that the U.S. is is the big baddie in the world, and China is a beacon for hope. Um, and it like you can you can see how people on the left in the U.S. would find that appealing uh, because they do have this this critique of imperialism there, and and the PRC has this rich anti-imperialist, anti-colonial legacy. You know, the Chinese Revolution was nothing if not an anti-colonial revolution as well, and an anti-imperial revolution. Um, so I think people look to it as this beacon of hope, and and as a it, it, it's interesting because you're talking as you're saying like the U.S. left doesn't look look out enough, look out in the world enough, and I think the tankies actually do, but in very very particular ways. Yeah, they do it in this way that's like this interesting sort of uh, this sort of idea of like a unipolar world, like they've just fully embraced the Francis Fukuyama into history view of the world of. You know, there's one great imperial power and it's just up to the rest of us uh, to resist it or whatever. And, you know, uh, would that it were true, you know, it would make it would make life a lot easier. Um, But, you know, the left has been in these positions before. I mean, you know, a lot of socialist groups justified, you know, their country's participation in World War One on a sort of similarly uh, faulty logic. Yeah, yeah. And it's ultimately, it's a, it's a really, it's a kind of, it's a nationalist logic, um, which is not, you know, it has some, some ironic similarities to the logic of a Robert C. O'Brien too, of this idea of there are good nations and bad nations and they're locked in this chess game across mm-hmm. the planet. Uh, and, and, you know, the parallels don't stop there though. So say like, um, so, you know, the Robert C. O'Brien line would be, well, the, the Hong Kong protesters are protesting for democracy and human rights, uh, and it is our duty as the liberal interventionists of the world to try to support them. Uh, Black Lives Matter's protesters are evil communists who are, you know, anarchist, Marxist, communist, whatever, um, and we can't support them. And it, so, you know, it's this strange logic. And then the flip side of the tanky logic would be like, definitely they, like they absolutely are supporting the black lives matter protests and, and are against us police violence. But then the idea is, well, like every single Hong Kong protester is a CIA puppet. Uh, and that this is all an American plot. Um, mm-hmm. so it's like the strange, yeah, that they're just, you know, flip side logics of each other. But ultimately I think obviously are helping to produce a, a, a new cold war, which is, generally dangerous for the world yeah and it, and it sort of flattens in the in the same way that o'brien does the sort of situation right in that yeah this idea that every hong kong protest is somehow at a cia ass is you know a bit silly and uh i remember my first introduction to tankies online was the ones who were like uh you know north korea must be defended at all costs or whatever on twitter and it was this thing of like you know, we should be able to hold two thoughts in our head that U.S. policy towards North Korea is fucking awful and has largely been genocidal throughout its history. And North Korea probably sucks to live in, yeah. you know, and you can even go a step farther and probably say U.S. policy is a big reason why it sucks to live. in. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, yeah, yeah. you know, it facilitated a lot of, you know, development in, in that country. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Cummings argues. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, and this is like, uh, it flattens everything out. And so I think, as you said, like the sort of battle of good versus evil, 
which uh, maybe uh, maybe this explains why comic book movies are so popular. But like, you know, it just doesn't explain the world, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it's an easy explanation of the world. And it's what, you know, it's yeah, I don't, I don't want to like dump on tankies too much because like, well, I, mm-hmm. you know, I think they're much more well-intentioned than the Robert C. O'Briens of the world. They have much less power mm-hmm. than the Robert C. O'Briens of the world. And oh, they're yeah. generally like, you know, they, they want to stand up to U.S. imperialism. But yeah, I, I agree with you. It is a very reductionist way of thinking about how, how the world operates and, and mm-hmm. allows you to avoid actually really investigating things in, in detail. Yeah, and, and and I'll say I do have uh, extreme sympathy for them in the sense that as somebody who uh, knows a lot, some would say too much about the Soviet Union, uh, I don't criticize the Soviet Union to mix company, <laughs> just as a general yeah. rule, because because I think that I don't find those people's intentions trustworthy or good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in a, in a sense, like I, I kind of they have this very outward facing social media life, and I kind of get it. Except for the fact that, like, I I don't are we are we uh, marching for like a G's invasion of the United States? I don't know. Maybe that would be good, but yeah, <laughs> who knows? I, I suspect that a war yeah. between the U.S. and China would be ultimately bad for everybody. But, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, and like to to follow up on that point, I think in the say in the the classroom uh, teaching, I think more often than not, I have probably like towed the tanky line sometimes in the classroom just because mm-hmm. students you know, 18-year-old college students come into the classroom generally with very anti-communist prejudices, unsurprisingly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and I think it's a way of shaking them out of them. But then, yeah, no, I mean, ultimately, like, obviously, as a teacher, I also want people to be investigating things in, in more detail and to think about things more structurally and systematically than that there are good guys and bad guys. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, in one day, I keep promising people, because people, you know, ask me about your last uh episode where t- particularly about the uh why don't people have <laughs> when you mentioned that people's healthcare was connected to their work i think that blew some people's minds but um in china that blew some people's minds but um you know the interesting thing i think the thing that's really fascinating about china is the sort of history of political struggle in china over communism right so I, that's the thing that's actually I, I would love if the left got more interested in because uh, a lot of what China was doing, particularly, I mean, when I hear this, uh, China's the exact same as the Soviet Union. I'm like, no, like some of the things they're doing are so different. And that's what's actually interesting about <laughs> yeah, it. Like, yeah. like their concern over ideology was radically different than yeah. the Soviet Union, who I'll be honest, didn't really give a shit. Like, that, you know, that's a radical difference. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, wish we could be interested in that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but we can't, you know, to do that, though, we, we can't flatten it out and be like, uh, Mao was good. So she's good, too. Right. <laughs> Let's keep right. rolling. Yeah. You know? And there like really are CIA plots in the world, too. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, you know, may, it, it's one of those things. Too, it, it always gets a little complicated with some of this stuff, too, where it's like. Yeah, there probably are like, you know, some idiot CIA agents in Hong Kong or whatever. But part of it, you know, looking at Robert O'Brien's sort of statements about China and stuff, don't think the people in the CIA know any more about China than these guys do. Like yeah. uh, the CIA is like famously and comically um, ignorant of the world. Uh, when we invaded Iraq in 2003, uh, apparently, it is true that the CIA literally believed the Dick Cheney line, or I'm sorry, the Donald Rumsfeld line, 
that we'd be greeted as liberators with flowers in the street. Apparently that oh. also caught the CIA by surprise when uh, people weren't thrilled that the people who have been murdering them for a full decade showed oh. up to murder them some more. <laughs> you yeah. know? I mean, um, like, why wouldn't they? I mean, the people joined the CIA, like, they, they really believe in the American project, right? And they, like, yeah. 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 <laughs> tune everything else out so like why wouldn't they think they'd be liberators so. sure yeah. you know uh i don't think they don't buy their own bullshit you know yeah. um well matt you know we've been going for like an hour 15 i kind of actually like to cut it off here maybe we'll break this into two episodes and if you have time maybe we can talk just a touch more about china and uh <laughs> the sort of anti-communist sentiments Does that that sound okay yeah yeah i'm currently unemployed so i got all the time in the world <laughs> hell yeah <laughs> living the dream living the dream covid dreams yeah well you know i'm in a household you know there's two of us in this household and we're currently 75 percent unemployed (laughs) yeah (laughs) really looking forward to that smaller check uh this next time around or this week so very excited is it is it is this is the last week where you get the big check and then next week it'll it'll be small (laughs) yeah Yeah. my god um you know i Part of me, you know, it, people in the U.S. getting worked up about something that they can't do anything about in China. Part of me wants to be like, uh, you know, in Ohio, they're opening up convention centers for uh, eviction court next month, yeah. starting on the first. Yeah. Like, oh, wait, I, those I, are things you can do something about. Yeah, that actually brings me to like one one more thing I do want to say before we end this part. That is, again, mm-hmm. like one that like, yeah, I guess I'm a little sympathetic to some of the tanky ideas, too, because, yeah, like learning everything you can about the detention camps in Xinjiang isn't going to stop them from happening. Something Mm -hmm. that like you can actually have some impact on is trying to like involve yourselves in some of these political struggles in the U S in, and in anti-imperial political struggles in the U S too. Yeah. And, and they are right about one thing, like, you know, the Martin Luther King thing that the U S being the greatest purveyor of violence, it's true on multiple levels. One, the U S is at war with the world pretty much at all times. But the other thing is like, we make the most weapons in the world and distribute them to the world. We make all the secure, all the shit that is required to like imprison a population, to monitor and spy on a population. We make all that shit, right? You know, yeah. because it's part of our imperial project, right? And it's like, care about that. You can do something about that, yeah. <laughs> you know? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rock that shit for hours.